I just watched the, um, speaking of private vices, I just watched the, <laughs> the um, uh, Louis C.K. special from <laughs> the one he recorded right before COVID in Washington, D.C. If you guys haven't watched it, it's... Uh, it's, it's good. <laughs> I mean, I loved his show. Uh... It's it's rough because it's, he you know, he, he deals with his uh, private vices uh, that, that got him canceled. Um, uh, yeah, they didn't stay private, did they? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, indeed. No, indeed. Yeah, um, anyway, uh, David, really awesome to have you on. Um, as I was just saying a few seconds ago, uh, Shadi and I were talking uh, in the car coming back from a, a dinner, an in-person work dinner. The first Ooh. time it's happened to me, uh, certainly this year. And I think Where did like, you eat? That's what I want to know. Uh, out in Friendship Heights, uh, <laughs> this place called Leah's. <laughs> Yeah, of course. It's just uh, less than a mile from my house. Wow. Okay. Yeah, we, we go there. We order in. If you go early, right, there's a, a special before 6.30. Ah, we got uh, there at 6.30. Oh, uh, bummer. Well, uh, anyway, I mean, we we're just talking about it. You know, uh, we had planned to have you on, and, and uh, uh, we both know you, but separately, completely separately. And I was trying to re- recreate it. I... Uh, I, I believe that I, it was Cheryl Miller who was at the American Interest, one of our uh, first batch of editors when we first started in 2005, and she had also gotten involved with the um, uh, that America's Libertar- Future Foundation. Amer- yeah, that's it, America's Future Foundation. Right, and you were editing the Double Think or the blog and also uh, other articles for AFF. That's right. That's um, correct. Yeah, and then so, I guess yeah. we met that uh, through that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so what were you doing then? Were you part of AFF? Were you a libertarian then? I mean, that's the thing that I was trying to recreate yesterday with Shadi. No, I mean, I have a checkered political history, but that's, again, a private vice I can't claim. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I have been a liberal Democrat. Um, uh, but at that time, uh, I guess if I'm trying to remember when exactly it was, see, um, I mean, I was in, in grad school doing my dissertation until the end of 2005. And when I started writing uh for you and aff that was right after i finished up with the mccain campaign so i was full-time for seven months basically after the primaries from you know roughly april 1st until election day in 2008 Mm. and then uh i basically had some downtime after that and i was only working part-time uh at the institute for defense analyses which is think of it like rand but uh even more inclined to keep it tight-lipped about its projects Mm. um and so part-time there and then was looking for another place to write and publish since I'd sort of uh, mostly wound things up with my own blog that I've been doing since 2002, uh, Oxblog. I'm glad you mentioned that, David, because that was one of the early classic blogs. I, I When I think about that whole era with, you know, Matt Iglesias, Ezra Klein, um, I mean, obviously Oxblog wasn't as, as famous as those ended up being, but... For people, for those of us who worked on foreign policy, Oxblog was one of the most interesting blogs. And you guys were really early in developing the kind of blogging persona. And I think there were like maybe three or four contributors, you and a couple other people. I can't remember who the others are. Right. Well, shout out to Josh Chaffetz, who's a professor of law at Cornell um, and active on Twitter these days. And yeah, definitely okay. more liberal than he used to be. Another one short-lived contributor is someone who's gone on to be relatively prominent in journalism, which is Anand Jared Haridas. Hmm. Um, oh, wow. wow. Huh. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I think if you Google it, you could still find a few of his early items for it, but that was pretty short-lived. He actually left even before I started. 
we had another fellow named Daniel Ehrman and another one, uh, Patrick Belton. But uh, I oh, guess yeah, Patrick Belton. Yes, that's right. Uh, who lives in the UK these days uh, with his family. Uh, it's been a long time. And yeah, Oxlog was a lot of fun. It was like, yeah, it really was early. I, I met Matt the first time in person because we knew each other, you know, through uh, blogging, I think at the around the time of the 2004 GOP convention. So, and I'm certainly interested to track uh, his uh, developments over the past few months, especially sort of on the outs for being a, a little too much of a challenger to the conventional wisdom where he works and, uh, you know, moving over to Substack. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, so you were a liberal Democrat during that period. Mm hmm. Yeah, because yeah. that's how I remember, like, th that's when I uh, first got to know you. I think you were still in your liberal Democrat mode. When when did that really start to change? Obviously, you joined the McCain campaign in 2008. So what would you say happened in that interim period between, say, 2003 and 2008? Right. Well, it, it probably winded back just a little bit more to um, when I went off to Oxford in 2000. Um, that's where I did my uh, doctorate. And, you know, to some sense, I got a, to see how far left the left really was that, um, you know, within days of 9-11, there was talk of how uh, really America was after the uh, potential for gas pipelines in Afghanistan. And so I'd also say that even if I was a liberal Democrat, right, if you think back to the late 90s, and I know uh, there's some mixed feelings here about Madeleine Albright, but it was a time when the the principled advocacy of democracy and human rights, along with a forward-leaning foreign policy, was a very democratic thing. You didn't even have to be a Joe Lieberman Democrat to be sort of the one remainder uh, figure in the party who supported it. It was just a, a fairly natural thing. So I, there wasn't sort of any issue there. And then, I mean, my domestic politics were also more to the left at that time. Uh, but that really wasn't the driving factor. The driving factor was as I watched things uh, sort of develop after 9-11. And uh, we can all talk about positions on the Iraq war, which I make no bones that I supported. And we can get into that. Um, but the other thing was that, uh, you know, my dissertation work, that as I reviewed the 1980s and what Reagan did and looked extensively at media coverage, I really got a sense of how, in hindsight, you had the benefit of seeing how the main media were often sometimes fair, but sometimes very slanted and always slanted from the same direction. And it led me to question a lot of uh, sort of basic things I accepted. Well, maybe this is a good time for us to sort of properly introduce you and, sure. you know, what you're doing now. Um, I guess they know that they know so far that your name is David and that you had a really <laughs> cool blog in uh, 2002. Um, so, we, you know, we are joined by David Adesnik. He is the Director of Research at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, also known as FDD, and also a senior fellow there. Um, anything else, you're, any other hats we should mention? No, I just say that my research now really focuses heavily on Syria and ways that we can hold the Assad regime accountable. Although, given that I'm director of research, a lot of what I do is uh, managing and editing. Um, it takes up more than half of my time. And uh, not too long ago, with my colleague John Hanna, we put out uh, a, a monograph called From Trump to Biden, The Way Forward for U.S. National Security. And we think it's fairly distinctive that we got 25 essays, uh, 15 of them on U.S. and relations with a particular country or region, 10 on cross-cutting issues like energy or human rights, for a pretty comprehensive assessment of Trump's policies uh, with bullet-pointed detailed recommendations 
uh, for Biden. So I wind up being a bit of a generalist as well as wearing the Syria hat. So I actually read some of some of those essays um, before this uh, to, pre- to prepare for our conversation. So I would recommend to our listeners, and we'll include a link in the show notes to take a look and to see where they come out on the Trump legacy. I didn't know fully what to expect because I'm... Um, and I actually read the the Egypt assessment with a little bit of trepidation, expecting mm. that I would disagree quite a bit. But actually, I was like, hmm, you know, I can, I'm, I'm okay with this. It's not, you know, I didn't disagree as much as I thought I would. I think we're we're quite aligned on um, you and I, David, on on Syria. But before we get into all of that, I, I'm curious, like in light of the work that you're doing on. Mm-hmm the Trump legacy and Trump's foreign policy, how would you describe yourself ideologically and politically now? Uh, never Trump, sometimes Trump, Republican, <laughs> conservative, whatever. Well, sort of to borrow from Jonah Goldberg, right? Never Trump is where you are during an election when you say, I will not support this candidate under any condition. Uh, in March of 2016, I signed the original Never Trump letter. Um, I thought we'd already seen enough at that point to know that there was a complete disregard for facts um, and some uh, strange and impulsive tendencies that would make for foreign policy being pretty uneven, as well as a real lack of concern for the role of ethics. Um, so I don't regret that. I've taken a lot of uh, uh, fire for it from other conservatives over the years. Um and then, you know, in 2020, again, I knew I was I was absolutely not supporting uh, Donald Trump. Uh, you know, I live in D.C., so we're you know 90 percent voting Democratic. I didn't feel I had to check a box for Biden either to increase his margin there. Um, <laughs> but um, but, yeah, it was it was unthinkable. And then, of course, you know, it was after the election where, uh, you know, January 6 under underscored for all the people who still we're holding out and trying to persuade themselves he really wasn't too far outside of the political norm, that everything people accused him of, other people had done before, that, you know, casting aspersions on the uh, integrity of our elections was just what the Democrats did in, in 2016. Um, and it, it made clear it wasn't, that, you know, his disregard for the, the fundamentals of democracy were on a different level. Um, I mean, if you looked at the foreword or the introduction to the, the study from Trump to Biden, uh, you, you see we, we make those points pretty forcefully. Yeah, so I actually didn't realize that you were one of the original never-Trumpers. This is quite an honor that we have you. I don't think we've ever had, Demir, um, a a proper never-Trumper, and certainly not one of the originals, because that mm. was a pretty rarefied group. Um, uh, well, alphabetically, I'm number two. I believe only, <laughs> only Ken Adelson comes before me. Wow. Um, and I think wow. until he signed the letter, uh, I'm sorry, Edelman uh, with an A. Um, and uh, yeah, so I was briefly number one. But really, obviously, the, the driving force behind that letter, uh, it was Brian McGrath and I believe with Elliot Cohen. That's right. Um, yeah. were, were you ever tempted during the Trump presidency after your initial position where you're like, hmm, maybe he's better than I thought. Maybe this isn't so bad. And you did you ever develop a soft spot towards him or were you able to resist the temptation? And let me just add before you even jump in on that, I... Am I is am I misremembering? Wasn't there also a moment that early on Elliot Cohen was saying that you know uh, people should go and try and serve in the early years? Or am I misremembering that? Was Elliot always against no? That? I think Elliot did say that. I think he, he was it was fair, and I, I agreed with that. That right, 
we don't just because we opposed it doesn't mean every qualified person with principles needs to hold back. Otherwise, we're not going to have qualified principled people in the administration. Um, I certainly know very, people who, for various reasons, didn't come out publicly with their positions and then, but you know, privately expressed sentiments similar to my own and then went to serve in senior positions in government. Yeah, so I, you know, and I think it's better that we had whether uh, someone like H.R. McMaster in at a point for as long as he was. Um, but in terms of the temptation, right, and part of it, the real issue is, you know, when you study foreign policy, you're active in it, you want your chance to get behind the wheel and not just be a backseat driver the way that think tanks inevitably are to a certain extent. And I mean, I think Trump gave reasons from day one not to ever feel good, but right, you look at other people getting their chance uh, to do these exciting things and you wonder, hmm, could I do this without... Um, compromising myself too much? Would I be making a net gain? And I mean, I guess part of it was I saw from fairly early on how, you know, foreign policy by tweet kneecapped and embarrassed people who thought they were committed to one thing and the next day they have to defend the opposite policy. So, uh, you know, it, it was... It was I, I had made my my bed and I was going to lie in it and I, I understood what I was losing at a point. I can say I regretted it, but uh, it wasn't the wrong decision. It's it's the 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 tweet by uh, the governing by tweet, which was actually seems to me like one of the the worst things about Trump. I mean, it's it's you know retroactively looking at the outcomes of four years of foreign policy. One can one can cherry pick and depending on depending on your 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 predilections. One way or the other, say, well, like he got this right, or you know, this was an important mm. thing. I mean, I think it, it's it's always been striking to me the extent to which, uh, you know, even though Hillary Clinton was, I think, ready to correct Obama's sort of weak approach to China, Trump transformed the entire discourse around China, and I think that's one of his lasting legacies. But it's exactly what you're you're pointing to is that is that you know there was no. There was no way that you could um, basically come out of there without just sort of, I don't know, uh, having in incredibly whiplash and I think suffering all sorts of reputational damage to yourself personally because there wasn't so much policy was so impulsive and so so scattershot and you had to carry water for it because, I mean, it seems like, you know, for H.R. McMaster's best efforts – uh, early on, uh, you know, the interagency process, such as it was, didn't seem to exist. Policy somehow trickled down from 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 social media in some ways, right? It trickled down. Uh, but I'd say the interesting thing is it's much harder if you step back and look at the whole four years to say, is there a clear correlation between bad process and bad outcomes? Or conversely, did good process, you know, good uh, interagency coordination, sound thinking and a, an intellectual and engaged president the previous eight years, did that necessarily lead to good results? Yeah. And you know, with Trump, I'm I'm not sure you can draw a clear line. It was definitely immensely frustrating. I don't, you know, I don't think you could run a campaign. I don't think, you know, it would have made any sense for Biden to go out there and say, look at the awful process for foreign policy. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's about results, right? And I guess the top defense that, you know, Trump advocates offered, they'd say, look, Bush gave us Iraq, Obama gave us, whether it was Benghazi or Afghanistan or the Islamic State, Trump gave us four years without a war. And until COVID, his, the economy was doing really well. I mean, that's, so sometimes you have to back out and say, how does this look to, you know, voters who may have just a, a, a very 
relatively low baseline level of engagement. How are they going to think about Trump's foreign policy? What is going to be remembered of these four years? And uh, I mean, I'm not sure how many of those things will be remembered that much, right? One of them will probably be the, you know, the Israel uh, Gulf normalization deals. Maybe people will remember that the Iran deal was off, but it, it's actually not a period where there's sort of historic developments that will probably immediately jump into people's mind as good or bad and sway their view of Trump. I, to me, it's just it's it's a question of China, and again, it's sort of mm. I, it's it's the that that you know even with Hillary Clinton's more hawkish approach to it uh, to to China's rise, uh, it was still one of I think uh, keeping keeping a door open to peaceful cohabitation, or not even that, or or at least call it the the sort of uh, promise of of uh, I don't know neoliberal magic of softening and allowing a certain kind of, of, you know, peaceful rise that mm. buys into some kind of liberal order system. I think that's still undergirded where Hillary Clinton would have been, even though I think, you know, I, I, I imagine, and I'd heard that she, she and state department had been frustrated by, you know, the pivot to Asia that came was announced mm. under Obama that was never really followed through. I think she would have definitely followed through on that, but the real sea change and we'll see now. You know, I mean, it's been interesting watching the first few years of Biden, that, that uh, first few weeks of Biden, uh, <laughs> the extent to which, um, uh, the extent to which, you know, uh, at least paying a lot of lip service to to uh, you know the 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 great power competition, it, it comes up every so often. Of course, they they don't they won't deny the great power competition, but are trying to it seems to like redefine the terms of what that really means. It seems to me that that's probably Trump's. Legacy. I mean, we'll see after four years of this what it looks like. But, you know, that seems to me like like a, a huge sea change. Yeah. And I'll say in, in the study and in an op-ed we did on that basis, we say, yeah, transforming that uh, mindset is a big deal. I guess what I'm thinking, though, is it's hard to point to a specific action or development that like marked the change. Right. I think you can point to the national security strategy and the uh, related national defense strategy in late 2017, early 18. But there was no sort of pivotal showdown between Trump and Xi, except to the extent you consider the the back and forth over COVID, which had much more probably more to do with domestic posturing. Um, you know, we had sort of this tariff war, but it was partially called off. Um, there was no clash in the South China Sea, no, uh, you know, nothing else that, that stands out really in, in my mind, but except for the defining the attitude. And, and I would add that one really interesting thing is this change in China is a rare case where you sort of have two clashing opposed camps of experts in D.C., and one of them really folds and says, you know what, we got it wrong. It's mm -hmm. time to join the other side. Mm -hmm. If you look at the uh, foreign affairs article that I think it's Jake Sullivan, the now the national security advisor, did with Kurt Campbell, now the Asians are at the NFC, they basically say that, you know what, there was this big debate. They're both Republicans and Democrats thought we could help make China a responsible stakeholder. We've seen it was wrong, and now we're going to understand that it's something else. And, you know, they wouldn't go as far in terms of framing it as an adversary and affirming great power competition the way the Trump strategy did. But it's a big change. I mean, the, the, the dialogue around China has changed dramatically in this town in a few years. And if I add one last thing, right, we point out uh, the China essay that if you look at Obama's defense strategies, right, they really avoided ever framing it as a competition, even yeah. if that was sort of implicit in the pivot to Asia. You know, the last national defense strategy in, or security strategy in 2015 boasted of the extent of cooperation with China. Yeah. Yeah, well, Obama is a bit conflict averse in that way, I suppose, which leads me to a question. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't mean to put you on the spot, David, but I'm curious what you would say to this. 
you know, knowing what we know, um, who would you say had a better foreign policy or a less bad foreign policy, Obama or Trump? And putting aside Trump's badness in terms of democratic norms at home and his domestic policy, if we just focused on foreign policy, what would you say? Yeah, so I tried to figure out the best way to frame that question for myself um, while doing, while editing this study. And I tried to say, okay, instead of saying what was Trump responsible for, but just in the various eras, areas we were looking at, did the U.S. wind up in a better or worse strategic position after four years? Um, and in, in a way, um, you know, in the Middle East, in a lot of respects, you know, because I, along with other conservatives who are still critical of the Trump administration, found Obama to have fundamentally the wrong strategy, especially in his second term with regard to Iran. Um, it, it may, it, I may have to come down on the side that he did more damage uh, in certain ways, whereas Trump moved the ball forward. Now, of course, if you like the Iran nuclear deal, you're never going to conclude that. Um, and if you look at other areas of the globe, I think obviously the split with European allies, the schizophrenia where, with, with Russia, it, you know, you're going to see say a lot of you know bad things in general. And then a Asia is a mixed bag, so. In some respects, it's a close run, run race, and it'll depend where you just come down on a few pivotal issues. So I think there was a, a tension, David, when I was reading your study that mm -hmm. there's there's obviously, and I know you personally have have always been a, a supporter of democracy promotion abroad. That you think that we should reflect our values, maybe not to the extent that I do, but at least to some significant degree, and um, that. And that includes pressuring autocrats in certain situations to be more respectful of human rights. But on the other hand, there is the the so-called Abraham Accords, the mm -hmm. Gulf Israel normalization. And reading your your op-ed with um, mm -hmm. with John Hanna, uh, there was an interesting line, and I want to push you on this a little bit to kind push of push away. I, I'm just curious, like where where exactly we diverge on this. So you you say. You call the Abraham Accords between the UAE, Bahrain, and and Sudan and Israel as Trump's "quote unquote" most unambiguous diplomatic success. Mm -hmm. So not just that you were in favor of it, but that you thought this was you know a very big part of Trump's legacy in the Middle East. The problem there, from my standpoint, is that that those were a set of deals, especially the UAE and Bahrain, those are two of the most repressive countries in the Middle East. They also, the UAE in particular, has supported, let's say, counter-revolution um, mm -hmm. during and after the Arab Spring and has been a very big supporter, for example, of the, the Sisi regime in Egypt. So in effect, these Abraham Accords are reifying an authoritarian order in the Middle East and strengthening and normalizing certain countries which are on the more authoritarian side. Obviously, m most countries in the Middle East are authoritarian, but there are different degrees in terms of um, how hard one pushes on repression and, and crackdowns and, and so on. So how would you sort of, is there I'm curious how you kind of think through that, because on one hand, I get the sense that you do want to see 
um, some respect for democratization or human rights, and you want the U.S. to promote that, but you also uh, want to see uh, some of these accords um, develop and, and, and probably expand in the region. Yeah, no, I'm glad to take that on. Uh, I read one of the pieces you wrote about it. Uh, I, obviously, I've seen the line of criticism in a number of places that, you know, Israel is making deals with authoritarian governments and they are getting legitimacy in Washington because of it. And I would say, well, what was the alternative uh, in the second or even both Obama terms that it was a push constantly to have Israel make a deal, mainly with the autocratic human rights abusing government in the West Bank. And even some people go as far as to say that, well, to really solve the problem, we need to also bring Hamas into the process. And it is, you know, probably hard to go more down the anti-democratic, anti-human rights road. So I felt a lot of this criticism uh, had to do more with a, a you know, certain mindset that wants to sort of make these Gulf states up pariahs, um, while the actually the alternative solution they favor is Israel making deals with a different set of authoritarians. And another relevant consideration is of all the people who, you know, criticize the Abraham Accords, how many of them were extremely eager supporters of uh, the JCPOA, that I Iran's human rights violations have been egregious with torture and forced confessions. They became even more egregious in the Trump years, right? Iran gunned down, an, according to Reuters, an estimated 1,500 peaceful protesters in 2019. You know, they, the IRGC was responsible for Iraq's brutal suppression of protests with uh, using Shiite militias that are Iranian-backed, what they do in Lebanon as well, and of course, you know, the atrocities they sponsor in Syria. And yet, where where were all these principled advocates of distancing from human you know human rights violating regimes when the U.S. wanted to draw closer to Iran? I'm with you on that, and and you probably know that I was a pretty outspoken critic of the Obama administration for a number of these reasons on Syria. I was also um, mm -hmm. you know one of the relatively few people on the left side of the spectrum who was quite critical of the Iran deal, but but actually the the basic premises of the Iran deal, which I mm -hmm. felt were um, you know, quite misguided for a number of reasons we don't have to get into now. But for those of us who want to be, and not to claim that I'm 100% consistent, we all have our blind spots, but for mm -hmm. those of us who try to be consistent on human rights and democracy in the Middle East, putting aside the people who are more hypocritical and you know support other authoritarian regimes, I mean, what would you say for those who are are trying to be consistent, um, critical of Iran's authoritarianism, but also opposing... Saudi Arabia and the UAE's authoritarianism. Sure. Well, I think if you saw the the Saudi chapter in in the collection, uh, I, I stand behind everything John Hanna and his co-author uh, there, Varsha Kodabayer, They wrote that absolutely, you know, Trump's shameless covering for uh, MBS was deeply problematic. I mean, very embarrassing to have total denial, uh, and you'll. Can you, if you could please pronounce for me correctly the name of the murdered individual with a column for the Washington Post, lest I butcher it? Oh, no, I can show you, yeah. Okay, I was, you know, I, I feel like Americans generally say Kasagi, and then I, I didn't want to sound too misinformed, but <laughs> bottom line, um, 
you know, that that was embarrassing. And then Trump just seemed to, you know, framing it as, oh, they buy enough weapons. I don't care what else they do. Um, you know, I think there are ways. And actually, again, uh, so Varsha, the co-author, uh, co my colleague, our Gulf analyst, senior Gulf analyst at FDD, she just did a very interesting piece in foreign policy, which looks at how already with Biden coming in and MBS uh, apparently quite concerned, the Saudis are starting to make gestures like letting out uh, Lujain al-Hathloul and a number of other dissidents. Uh, pushing through a number of other domestic reforms. And I think, you know, it, there are ways we can push them to do better. Um, telling them they shouldn't make peace or normalize with Israel, I'm not sure how that gains, right? Your concern is somehow we legitimize them by saying it's good they make peace. I'm not sure we need to say that you can't have, you know, peace agreements with authoritarian states. The question is you shouldn't just give up all of your pressure on their internal behavior or say what they do in Yemen just because uh, they, you know, they happen to be authoritarian. So, David, can I ask you a broader question? Uh, Absolutely. You know, I, I, yeah. I've, I've, I've uh, read parts of the, the, the monograph as well. You know, it's, 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 it's comprehensive, and it's not to say that it's uh, um, unfocused because mm. I think it's, it's quite detailed on, on, on many, you know, on uh, almost all of the sort of foreign policy uh, exhaustive in, all the, in listing all the po foreign policy uh, dossiers and, and challenges facing the United States at this one point. Um, and I, I do find it really interesting, I think, how you basically frame the Trump years and how you, you're, you're approaching the, the Biden years. I mean, I, I do want to talk to you about sort of, you know, your optimism and concerns about the, the, mm -hmm. the, uh, the upcoming presidency. But, but maybe the, the, the question I'd ask you, because FDD is, has always been for, uh, you know, increasing military spending, for, you know, a muscular foreign policy, for an activist foreign policy. Uh, do you have a sense of, um, of, how you would have the Biden administration prioritize things right now, because obviously one one can answer that by saying you know America needs to first lead from a position of strength, and these things you know uh, there's cumulative positive effects of being strong in one place and and these things sort of uh, cascade. My former uh, editor at the magazine, Adam Garfinkel, always would say that you know u s government really is capable of handling maybe three things at the same time and really three things they're screwing up one of them pretty badly at that point that even like you know as as good as your process is the rest of it it's it's just like so many hours in a day so much that can get done and, and pass through bottlenecks so i mean can you talk a little bit about that um uh, maybe maybe I, I i missed the part in the in the in the book that sort of you know says these are the priors how would how would you in particular looking at the world as it is right now which arguably you know the challenges are are multiple what's what's a what's a good way to think about D that demir approach? do you just realize that you inadvertently quoted the title of ben rhodes's book I always inadvertently. You quote, said the world as it is. That's what I always do. I, it's the thing I quote most frequently. <laughs> but, okay, funny, funny little aside. I actually, I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, either of you, but um, for the book that I'm writing now, which does go into the Obama period on foreign policy, I bought pretty much all the memoirs from senior Obama figures, and of course Obama himself. So I have this pile. Um, including Ben Rhodes's book, and I've been trying to avoid reading it for quite literally years because, as as listeners may know, I have an ongoing feud with Ben Rhodes. Um, yes. Have you thought of like doing maybe like a charity exhibition MMA bout? 
Um, <laughs> I mean, I feel that like we got to milk this for something, right? In some sense, you're both on the progressive side. It can't be that deep of a blood feud. It's not, I don't... Um... Well, even even better, we could invite him on the podcast. That would be really interesting, Demir. Invite him on the podcast, tie him to a chair, like... <laughs> Like smear him with honey and like release the rats or something. Well, no, but I mean, it's like, do you remember the, like the crossover episode of um, Different Strokes and the Facts of Life from the 80s, right? It's like, oh my God, two shows are coming together. Can't you have a joint episode of Wisdom Crowds and Pod Save the World? Huh. Um, they probably I wouldn't guess... agree to it. I mean, we'd probably benefit quite a bit from that, but you know, yeah, who knows? yeah, I could see that. Given um... Shadi's relentless trolling through the years, I don't know if we could pull this off as a thing. Mm. Which mm. makes me forget what Demir's question was because I kind question of was prioritize, prioritize, <laughs> prioritize the, the 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 many many different piles of of messes that that you know we're facing collectively in the United States. Yeah, today. I mean, I, mean I, I forget whose quote I'm borrowing when I say you know superpowers can walk and chew gum. Um, that we have the ability to pursue several different policies. I think it is true that at the high level prioritization, you know, often the principles become so committed so that when, you know, say we're negotiating uh, with the Iranians for the JCPOA, that's where Kerry was. That's that was his top priority. And it's, you know, it's some you can't have you have one secretary of state and one national security advisor. And the president's always divided between several things. So, you know, where should Biden invest his effort? I agree that continuing to focus on, uh, you know, Iran as the key element of instability in the Middle East is sort of the right focus there. Um, obviously, a very different approach. Uh, what I would recommend, uh, I think, you know, if he is determined to go back into the JCPOA, I mean, my advice, the advice of my colleagues is don't trade away your leverage as much as you may have disliked Trump's maximum pressure policy. Recognize uh, what a rough position it put the uh, Tehran regime in, in terms of domestic problems, inability to fund most of the things it wanted to fund. And instead of sort of making too many proactive concessions just to show goodwill, because I don't think there's a great need to demonstrate goodwill, it's a, it's it's going to be a hard-headed bargain about interests, come to the table and make the deal and use your leverage. Then absolutely China, right? There's just no way around that. Uh, you know, the geopolitical weight that comes with China having a billion people with a mid-level, uh, you know, income per capita means that they, you know, something comparable to the U.S. economy with, uh, you know, increasing funding of, of like no one else, you know, other than the U.S. on their military, uh, comparable funding on internal repression like no one else, where even the U.S. clearly can't match it. Um, they're showing a level of aggression. They're engaging in, you know, human rights violations of an amazing scale. Um I think to some degree, uh, it's about building on measures that were put in place during the Trump administration. Uh, I think that the president himself didn't show much of a focus on where it was that you can really put in place the infrastructure for a long-term competition. At first, he was completely preoccupied with the trade deficit, and I personally don't think that the month-to-month -month deficit or even the annual deficit matters. It's much more about the theft of intellectual property and technology. Um, and and other sort of uh, illicit economic uh, approaches, including cyber attacks. Um, and th but there's a lot more to do. I, I think, as we say in, in the study, it's, you know, Biden could do more to have a more uh, 
alliance-based approach, uh, certainly an approach that cares more about principles. There's some indications that Trump basically gave a green light on, a tr you know, saying, I don't care what you do to the Uyghurs. Um, so improve other elements um, and also maybe, you know, have a channel where, you know, perhaps you can avoid a blow up, sort of have the like the old uh, bat phone that the Soviets had on their desk and was in the Oval Office. So there's more to do on China, um, but also a lot of efforts that still need to go into building up the things that started to be put in place. Do, do you think, though, like, for example, I mean, I don't know, there's a story in Politico, I think I saw this morning was saying, you know, uh, that in fact, the Middle East is not even like the top three uh, priorities for the Biden administration. I mean, I always get the sense, maybe because I do Europe a lot more, mm -hmm. that you know, uh, in in many ways, the the Iran deal is is seen, uh, especially because uh, Biden seems to be somehow sticking to some of these you know uh, achievements of the Trump administration, including the Abraham Accords. That 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 the Iran deal just really pissed off the Europeans in a big way, and like getting that somehow patched up while still trying to preserve other things. It doesn't seem like there's a huge strategy there. Like it, it's all some, somehow downhill of these things. And this is what I mean about like, you know, mm. the Biden administration is still talking about great power competition, but somehow trying to reform it. I don't personally have a good sense of where they're heading at these things. Do you, are you optimistic? Are you, do you feel like, like, um, I don't know that, that, that this is going to, to work well somehow with what they're doing? I guess I, I don't know yet what they're doing. Mm. Um, I It'll be interesting if they put out, I mean, I've heard they want to put out a national security strategy much sooner than Trump did. So wait, you know, Trump waited 10 months. Right. Uh, they might, you know, if they do it in four or five, that doesn't often happen. Um, it, that would be a pretty fast pace. Um, you know, I don't, foreign policy was not really there in the campaign. Um, you know, like all candidates, Biden did an essay in foreign affairs explaining his approach to the world. And I'm not sure you could distill yeah. priorities very clearly from it. A lot of it is the easy things I won't do that Trump did. I won't, yeah. you know, do foreign policy by tweet. I won't slap our allies in the face. I won't treat human rights with contempt. But that's not being Trump is not a foreign policy. Um so I, I do want to see what the strategy comes up with. I don't know if I'm not sure the Middle East is really priority number three. If you're pushing back for something big, like getting into the JCPOA again, um, that is going to consume a lot of effort. But the whole point of the Iran deal, at least during the Obama era, was about disengaging from the Middle East. The idea being that if you resolve the nuclear issue, the U.S. doesn't have to provide the same kind of excessive security guarantees it can um, diminish its footprint, not completely, but at least to some extent. And there was always a sense with Obama that he saw the Middle East as a nuisance that, oh my God, like you would almost like see his face sometimes it's like, oh mm. fuck, I got to deal with the Middle East again. Seriously. Why can't these people just like, if only they could all be Norwegian technocrats who didn't believe in ideology and, and weren't swayed by religious passions and millennia old conflicts. I mean, there was this sense that um well and that's also i think where don't do stupid shit comes from mm. and i think now the danger is that we're going into not just don't do stupid shit but don't do shit like we're we don't really have new ideas on the middle east besides i would say being less indulgent of autocrats than trump was but beyond that there isn't a real sense of of any desire to accomplish anything in the middle east and that's what makes me nervous about Biden. That said, if you look at the Middle East now, it is hard to really be optimistic about what can be done 
constructively. I mean, so I mean, I, I guess I would ask, like, with that in mind, where would you, David Adesnik, um, put the Middle East in your list of priorities? Or you have you kind of given given up hope to some degree? No, I don't. In fact, it, it's more that I think there's this constant, des- as you said, this desire to get rid of it, right? And you could say that easily runs all the way back to Jimmy Carter, even to Dwight Eisenhower sending Marines into Beirut um, in uh, in the 50s. It's like there's always been this sense that, you know, it's like that the one memorable scene from Godfather 3 where, you know, uh, Al Pacino does his, I wanted to get out, but they pulled me back in. Like, uh, and the yeah. rest of the movie was horrible. Um <laughs> But and, and, you know, and the first two were great, um, although the, on a real aside, the big thing that always gets me is that um, Clemenza from the first one. I learned this by listening to the commentaries on the first three. He was, you know, the whole character of Frankie Pantangeli in the second Godfather wasn't supposed to be there. He was invented because they couldn't reach a deal on a contract with uh, the, uh, I think it's Richard Castellano who played Clemenza. So you had this weird shift and that always- Is that a either... metaphor for the Iran deal? <laughs> a very complicated <laughs> metaphor. Um, but um, sorry, we t- started talking Godfather and you got me way <laughs> off. But no, so I'm, I'm generally of the idea that right, there's this whole problem that this desire to get out of the Middle East leads to big mistakes, whether it's the, you know, rushed complete withdrawal from Iraq that lets it melt down uh, because of Maliki's sort of anti-Sunni persecution and then the rise of the Islamic State. Um, to other times when the same thing, you know, we could easily see the same thing happen again. That, But in terms of, you know, what are these big threats to deal with? That was the overarching question. I mean, I think the framework is relatively consistent If you, in the sense that if you look at testimony from military leaders and what threats they tick off, it's going to, it's sort of the same list of four plus one. It's Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and terrorism, usually meaning uh, Sunni extremist terrorism. And then you get this question, how do you rank those? And, you know, the the implication of, uh, you know, great power competition is you're supposed to focus on the first two and the others are more of a distraction. Um, But there's some hedging, say, in the national defense strategy. Uh, You may know Bridge Colby, who was the deputy assistant secretary. He's been at CNAS. He helped frame that strategy. And he very much wants to interpret it, I think, and trying to be as fair as I can to Bridge, who I've been friendly with and disagreed with. Um, It really means stop getting caught up in all these Middle East problems. But it's also, if you let things spin out of control in the Middle East, right, if you have something like another 9-11, then you're not going to be able to focus on great power competition. So if you don't put in the effort, it's a problem. Uh, And North Korea as well. I mean, there's an interesting story there of Trump actually apparently getting close to a breakthrough that no one else did, no one else sat down with a North Korean leader. And then he is at least smart enough to say no to a front-loaded deal of ending sanctions in exchange for limited concessions. But then he just sort of puts things on ice for two years and we're back where we started. So you can't ignore them either, right? Because they have ICBMs that probably can hit the United States fairly soon. So it's like we have to keep our eye on the long-term great power competition, but invest enough in the others that they don't spiral out of control. And if I could add one thing to that, uh, just yesterday, Joby Warwick's book came out. Um, Red Lines? Yeah, Red Lines. 
and uh so i'm i'm reviewing it uh i pre-ordered it i i uh, i'm 60 pages in i think it's a, a really first rate of course he won the pulitzer last time around for his book on isis although i, I confess i haven't read it but what's really interesting is this whole line that you know the subtitle is part of his looking for the most dangerous arsenal in the world it's really interesting he talks about what the the very detailed knowledge the u.s had of Syria's chemical weapons program that, that we knew it had over a thousand tons of vx and sarin and related things and there was really this constant fear in 2012 and there were people constantly coming to obama and saying like we are only you know sort of inches away on the map of jabhat al-nusra or other extremists getting control of assad's chemical weapons so even if you wanted to be out of the middle east if you think that a you know a cloud of that stuff is going to be you know, shipped in, in trucks or on a boat to Italy or Greece or further into Europe or, you know, put in rockets and Hezbollah is going to shoot it uh, into Haifa or Tel Aviv, uh, you know, you'd, you'd be crazy to ignore the Middle East. I mean, that was the same line in the 1990s, right? It was, I remember going in for sort of a career advice talk with a congressional staffer when I was in college. He's like, you got to focus on geoeconomics. This Middle East thing is played out. And, you know, th then comes 9-11. So, you know, let me ask, I mean, this is a sort of question for both of you, uh, but I, I, I sort of, Shadi and I have chewed this over previously, so more for you, David. But, you know, just even thinking through what may happen with Biden, you know, you'd mm -hmm. mentioned this possible national security strategy coming out soon. And, you know, having read a ton of those foreign affairs pieces by Jake Sullivan and, you know, a lot of the principles that are in place mm -hmm. now, uh, seeing Tony Blinken get interviewed. And, yeah, I think Biden's essay was just complete boilerplate and nonsense. But it's it's what what comes out of this stuff is, you know, um, to me anyway, is, is redefining great power competition that the word competition doesn't mean war. It mm -hmm. means competing and it means perhaps competing economically. Competition does not meet con does not mean does not entail necessarily confrontation. Maybe confrontation on issues such as human rights, but confrontation seems to be uh, dialed down a fair bit in what that would mean. I mean, maybe it just means uh, complaining and trying to address this through through trade deals and you know having riders or something like that. But I just don't see it as you know. There's a I think there's an effort to sort of dial back some of this stuff. I was struck when you were saying that you know the four plus one challenges and you said like plus one is radical Islamic terrorism. I would say they would say plus one is climate change, for example. Mm. And uh, rather than listing you know uh, all those countries, they would say, well, actually the challenge is authoritarianism. And they would say that you know, and and this is what I'm I want to push both of you on, but. but you in particular, David, this is, you know, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy with FDD's stance about the importance of uh, both an engaged and active America, one that actually uh, has its foreign policy backed by uh, sufficient military might and an ability and a willingness to use it. And my, my main criticism of American foreign policy comes being that there's, there isn't a usually a, 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 a sort of strategic, you know, point or an idea of how they're going to be used. So I think oftentimes we end up in these sorts of messes. So I was sort of asking you about the prioritization. But the, the, the bigger question is, is how do you ultimately disagree uh, with Biden's worldview um, 
what I disagree with is this idea that, uh, you know, uh, found like, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever, the concert of democracies is going to make much of a difference because this is, this is that kind of empty multilateralism that I think comes out of a certain kind of progressive worldview that democracy improves the world and we need to be spreading democracy to improve and create order. I don't know where you come out on that. I don't even know exactly where Shadi comes out of that. I don't think he's yeah, that do, sunny Demir. about it. I don't know if you're <laughs> that sunny about it. I don't think you necessarily think we're, we're going to reach world peace at any one point. But that to me is the part that's the most dangerous, I think, in the sort of conceptualization of how the Bidenites seem to be looking at the world. It's America can't solve all the problems. Yeah, I largely agree with that. I mean, I think you need to set set priorities. I think they're 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 likely to be a lot weaker and much more conciliatory than necessary on on most of the things that matter. They're likely to be misre- mis mis uh, 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 what you call ordering. I think priorities in a big way, and lo- a lot of uh, but a lot of that comes from a certain kind of idealism that I think the two of you share about democracy and world order. So I don't know. That's just a pretty wide open question. Take yeah, it whatever no, you want, but like I don't a, know. Yeah, there's a ton of stuff there. So first, right? Let's I'd say begin with the empirical look at what is the relationship between U.S. and other reasonably uh, consolidated, all the the idea of consolidated democracies is problematic, but, you know, other fairly established democracies. And those are the countries the U.S. historically gets along with best. When countries transition well to democracy, it either strengthens our relationships or turns previous adversaries, obviously Germany and Japan sort of being canonical cases, uh, into countries that we can get along with over the long term. So, you know, it seems the real issue is, you know, if we, how do we get more countries to be democratic without the process of transition uh, being dangerous and backfiring? Right. So the, you know, I think there's a straw man critique that you know the there was a naivete under Bush that we could knock over regimes and they'd become democratic. Or some people extend it to Obama and say we knock over Libya and do nothing; it'll turn out better. So I, I'm fully on board with the idea that the the change is very difficult. But it seems to me the underlying idea that the U.S. gets along far better and achieves more in terms of its national security and allies with other democratic states is is pretty hard to dispute as an empirical regularity. Um, It's also interesting that you associate what the uh, alleged flaw in Biden's thinking with progressivism, right? Because, I mean, I'm sure Shadi likely, and uh, and if he can weigh in himself, is relatively shocked that the Biden administration is talking so much about democracy promotion, right? You know, there was the moment during the Arab Spring when Clinton, Obama, and Biden talked that way, and then well, even that was surprising, right? Because if you remember the 2008 campaign, nothing was more poisonous than democracy promotion if you were a Democrat. And democracy promotion was a Bush idea. It was, and again, I think it's a caricature. It was the reason for the war in Iraq. I think or the re- that's not. I think it was much more offered uh, post hoc as a justification, but it was toxic. And again, it became toxic again in the later Obama years. And everyone said, oh, that, you know, this push for democracy will get it, us into Afghanistan. It's, or even humanity intervention, it gets us into Libya. And then for a number of reasons, suddenly uh, Biden is embracing it. And it didn't seem like other Democrats were pushing for it. I mean, you listen to the primary debates. There was, you know, if you look at, say, the Warren and Sanders essays in foreign affairs, they talked a little about democracy promotion, but it was a fairly pro forma, like, we want to support labor movements around the world. Whereas the Biden stuff, it really is, we want to push authoritarians to reform. Um, So the fact that that's once again in the progressive column is very curious. I think a lot of it is a reaction to Trump um, and suddenly, you know, or the perceived 
very close relationship between Trump and Putin and Putin interfering in our elections. So suddenly this sort of somehow roused the inner cold warrior that Biden still has. And he's decided that he, he's talking like Reagan, which is sort of stunning. So, uh, you know, I guess in general, I'm pushing back on the idea that there isn't a, an empirical reason or an empirical basis for believing that this helps. Um, I'm surprised that it's progressives making that case. And I just think, you know, hopefully we'll pursue it smartly because there's a lot of lessons, a lot of ways you could say we're already repeating like the the experience of the Carter era where he comes, he makes a big you know point about human rights and then suddenly discovers how hard it is to start actually pushing other countries. And the answer is to push the most vulnerable American allies at that time, certain Central American countries to reform while giving a pass to anyone who's bigger or more important. Well, I mean, just, uh, you know, I, I have to come to Sanders, B Bernie's defense <laughs> for a moment, because, I mean, David, as you might recall, I, I mean, he he didn't use the language of democracy promotion, but mm. he did talk quite a bit about countering uh, despotic regimes. So one mm -hmm. might call this more an anti-despotism uh, policy more than a, an affirmative democracy promotion policy. And he was focused on two countries in particular, Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And I sympathize mm. with that because I've generally seen those two countries as the most problematic of our Arab allies. And so, you know, talking about suspending arms sales to Saudi Arabia, condition, um, conditioning military aid to Egypt, on those issues, I mean, Bernie really pushed the envelope and others kind of followed suit, especially on Saudi Arabia, where, you know, uh, it would have been hard to imagine someone of Biden's stature, um, you know, five or 10 years ago calling Saudi Arabia pariah state. But that's actually something that Biden said during the primary because there was a lot of anger over Saudi Arabia's reckless and repressive behavior. And I think if we look at it from that standpoint, it starts to make more sense why progressives um, can get on board with a countering strategy. They can look at bad regimes and say, let's hold back, because that's still not really engaging too much. It's not too forward looking. It's not too um, it's not too democracy promotion-y, but it still, I think, is a very helpful a very helpful approach because at this point, Egypt and Saudi Arabia aren't going to become democracies anytime soon. The priority has to be making them less repressive than they currently are. So I just say that uh, it's a good reason to bring up the Jimmy Carter precedent again, that that I think that part of the Democratic left, it can the extent of its anti-despotism policy is it can push it on a number of uh, American allies, um, both because it's always easier to to uh, have leverage with your allies. And also what you do to them largely involves doing less abroad. It means disengaging. So you actually have something that looks a bit like a democracy promotion policy that's mainly about low-hanging fruit and disengagement, right? Uh, I would take a sort of anti-despotism policy more seriously if it made an equal emphasis on, you know, some you know horrific adversary states like China um, or North Korea, or even a tougher case like Turkey, which is a quasi-ally. And of course, also factoring in, you know, countries like uh, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. But I think that's why I, I really find it a little hollow 
uh, coming from certain part of the left. But Biden doesn't seem to have all those caveats, which I find interesting. I mean, I think when the rubber hits the road, he might incline in that direction. And the second there's a measure of conflict associated with these things, you know, for example, uh, uh, I meant to respond to Demir's point about climate change. Maybe climate change is the plus one. Um, but, you know, there was I, forget, I wish I could remember who wrote it, but an article in The Atlantic saying one of the big issues is they've given John Kerry this big sort of open ended climate portfolio. And he's basically going to become the person who keeps lobbying for uh, keeping things on a on a goodwill track with China so you yeah. can conclude some kind of climate deal. I mean, I think that would be a, a very big mistake. Well, no, you know, but that, I think that's that nails it right there. I wrote a piece for The Examiner like in July writing the, writing the exact same thing that like, you know, the fact that that this multilateralist approach and this and, you know, the reason I said progressive and just to sort of to to, to explain why I said that I didn't mean in the sort of like American left right thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I think in the sense that that largely neoconservatives are progressives. They have a view of of like positive change in the world, whereas you know, and and Shadi as a you know liberal internationalist also, I think you know has has that. There's that versus that kind of you know more tragic minded, more realist minded, much more cynical sort of thing. But if you you know want to strip aside the cynicism that's attached itself to Kissinger and and that entire. Uh, sort of thread of people. It's an appreciation of the intractability of global conflict, of managing tragedy, basically, and therefore prioritizing, you know, how you're going to do it. Specifically, I think if you take your problems as climate change, authoritarianism, all of these sorts of, like, nebulous things, instantly... Uh, I think that puts America as one of several creative actors. It's about, you know, creating these kinds of uh, structures to manage, you know, these kinds of nebulous problems. I think it's 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 really bad. And I mean, I share your 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 skepticism. I just want to even sharpen it a little bit is that I think I think Biden and his team think they're talking a big talk. I think this is this is all going to amount probably to a lot less than even the early talk is 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 going to to point to but again i just wanted to point out that the the progress thing is that is that question of of improving the world rather than managing it and this is why you know i i i i do think you know i i know a little bit of what 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 bridge colby does think about these things and his his stuff about the middle east and and prioritizing these things um i i, I do think that that most people who deprioritize the middle east uh, do so at their peril because for for reasons of just sort of global balance and the the importance the remaining importance of the Middle East we'll see as the sort of energy situation changes I think at that point the the the, the question of the Middle East and North Africa becomes the population problems with Europe and and the destabilization of that but anyway I'm getting I'm getting off track here the the, the main thing for me is is I think I feel like you you both of you will probably be disappointed by Biden but I'm, I sort of wanted to Maybe just tighten that question about uh, you know whether it's it's that idea of of progress and maybe to try and sharpen that maybe between how you see uh, progress, David. I don't want to be putting words in your mouth, but maybe as America as a catalyst for change that is very active versus I don't know, Shadi, if you are more sympathetic to the Bidenism or you also feel that America is sort of the necessary catalyst for this kind of change because I do think that the Biden approach is is probably not going to work. No, I mean, I'm definitely going to be disappointed with Biden. I have no doubt about that. It's just a question of how much and when I'll get really disappointed. And it depends. That'll probably depend on developments in the Middle East and so forth. I think that uh, part of part of the issue is that 
it's very easy to say that you support democracy and you want to improve things in other countries. And that doesn't really cost a lot to offer up that rhetoric. But the problem is when you have the misfortune of having really bad authoritarian allies in the Middle East, it, it does take a lot of effort and, and attention to try to pressure them in the right direction. And I've just seen no evidence that there's a real desire to get in what could be confrontational situations. So, for example, with three of our closest allies, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the UAE, which I see as sort of the problematic triumvirate in this regard. And, you know, unfortunately, and I understand it from Israel's standpoint, but, you know, there's a reason that Israel doesn't, isn't particularly enthusiastic about democracy in the Middle East, because those who tend to win elections in the Middle East tend to not like Israel all that much. Um, because they, they have to reflect popular sentiment and popular sentiment in the Middle East is pretty anti-Israel and even unfortunately sometimes anti-Semitic. So, you know, that's sort of where we're at. And I just, um, and this gets to, I think, what, what we were talking about earlier is what are the priorities? If we just, if we look at China, North Korea, Iran's nuclear program, those are, those are, those are things, those are worst case scenarios that we want to prevent. That's not really an affirmative vision for how to constructively change, uh, say, the Middle East. And the Middle East is important, not just because of the Middle East, but it's a theater where great powers compete with each other and where the ideological divide over dictatorship versus democracy is going to play out. I mean, that's that's where the real test of our democratic convictions is in the Middle East, because it's the one region of the world that has remained most immune to democratic change. Well, Asia is not doing great either in some respects, but I guess what I want to do most is push back on the Demir's tragic sense and sort of the hint that if you have a any sense of progressivism, meaning that the U.S. can affect positive change, you're on a mistaken trajectory, right? So if we look at the last 75 years since the end of World War II, when are you going to find a comparable period where more countries have become democratic, where there's been more prosperity and fewer great power wars? Um, you know, there's two halves to that period. One was with two superpowers and it was tough and we made major mistakes and held the line and it's been a, a little easier to manage with only one superpower though china is coming back but i, I just I, I push back on those who might call themselves realists and focus on this tragic sense when we clearly see that there's been a time when we've had among superpowers or among great powers in history one that has a for all its flaws a fairly unique commitment to a better order and and the results are there to show it I mean, you know, David. I, yeah, here's Demir. The part, no, here's the part where actually, I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I don't oppose the the argument from hegemonism because I, that's how I would frame what you just described. There is that you know, I, I'm not, I'm not some sort of self hating American that 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 you know uh, uh, would deny any of this sort of stuff, you know, because you know America does stupid foreign policies every so often. I've never, I've never been one of those people, and you know, it's it's. Uh, the 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 sense of the tragic is is more that uh, I, I I don't like the idea I don't I don't believe in the idea of sort of moral progress and therefore progress in 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 the world I mean I think these things can be contained and as I was saying earlier my 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 sympathies were with where FDD comes uh, from is the idea that you know a strong America especially in foreign policy is important my there, we have no disagreements there I'm not a restrainer I'm not one of those people in that way um, but it, it's 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 uh, uh, it's it, it is about setting priorities I mean what Shadi was getting at as well um, you know uh, the 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 
the problem of of framing it in sort of uh, in these sort of large category terms is you end up doing nothing as well, you know. And so, you know, you, perhaps you do need to to set sort of country by country priorities, and and maybe they should be based on values, like both of you are arguing, you know, about about actually promoting a. Uh, healthier internal stuff. Again, I mean, I don't know. This is an ongoing sort of discussion with me and Shadi about, you know, uh, how if w- whether we have the capacity to it. You know, what can we do to improve the capacity? How do we know the limits of our capacity to affect these sorts of changes? And I'm open to the idea that certain amounts of pressure, if viewed from sort of a strategic point of like, well, we can do this because this will enhance our leverage vis-a-vis X, Y, and Z further down the line. I'm not, I'm not against any of that. And I, I you know, just to, to be clear on, on, on your pushback, David, sure. um, it's just, it's the, it's the concern about really this idea of progress. And I, it's, it's a certain kind of sunniness that comes from uh, but, that, that I, I just recoil from look, maybe but, as a, as look, a Slav, you, you know, we don't have to be sunny to acknowledge. I'm, I mean, I'm not like the most sunny person in the world either, but I think that as David just pointed out, I mean, you can't look at the last, the last 70 years um, in the, you know, international order and not say, well, there has been considerable progress, whether we want to use the phrase moral progress, I suppose, is a different question. But at least in terms of better outcomes on something like democracy, I think David made a pretty good case for democratic peace theory, which is another ongoing point of, of debate. But like empirically, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that certain things have gotten significantly better in the period that the U.S. has been a superpower. Like, how can we, I mean... That's why I, I termed it hegemonism rather than, like, democratic progress. But that's fine. I mean, that's just, that's quibbling, perhaps. No, but if it leads to democratic progress... The hegem- it's, a, it's a side effect. I mean, that's what I'm getting at. But but okay, you know, I, I well, don't think there's a huge de- debate there. To well, be wouldn't the question be what kind of hegemon it is? I mean, which other country, if given the same resources, would likely have seen the same correlated outcomes? Maybe you could make a case for Great Britain uh, and sort of what it was earlier when it before it sort of was a weary titan in Aaron Friedberg's phrase and hand it off to the United States. But right, if whether it's Russia, China, or any of the other main great powers in history, if they had been given that position, it wouldn't have led to that. And the U.S., of course, at times has undermined it. You know, anyone should be able to cite the coups in Guatemala uh, or in Chile to some degree. Iran is a complicated case. Um, But nonetheless, it's very strange how there is this sort of ideological knock-on effect that happens without it being promoted directly. I mean, when the Soviet Union fell, there was no direct order that other countries needed to stop imitating it and having socialist republics and that there should be less Marxism on every university faculty. But those things just happened because power has this ideological attraction. So it matters what ideology the quote-unquote hegemon has. I, I'm just, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't need any of that to justify uh, mm. a hawkish position on China or Russia. Quite frankly, I mean, mm. I, I just, I simply don't. I, they're, they're, they're revisionist of an existing order on, you know, a side that I'm on. Quite frankly, mm. and I think that that, you know, a, a case for peace from through strength is about all I need to justify all the policies that I want to poli- to justify without getting into human progress. Ultimately, um, I mean, again, I, I, I do think. That's why, in many ways, we're more aligned than than this seems. Mm. Though, though, when you drill down to certain things and how how problems are described, I do worry that that you know, how do I put this? That 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 um, you guys may end up feeling that uh, though, David, you've already clearly said that you're you're deeply skeptical of of, of Bidenism, but I, I do feel that that there's a, a kind of of slippery slope. 
towards a kind of Bidenist approach to things. And maybe it's because of the Democratic Party and the things like that. But if you have a certain sense of uh, progress and an idea of the liberal world order, a lot of these constructs that they're building their idea of the world around are based on that. And I think that fundamentally, the idea of the liberal world order that doesn't assume it as fundamentally American hegemonism misses, I think, what's important about it, which, again, to to the credit of uh, FDD, you guys don't miss the importance of American power in ensuring this sort of stuff. But I don't know. Am I making myself clear about that? Like, well, at maybe all? there's a big difference between we talk about the liberal order, right? There's two very different visions of the liberal order. One is really liberal in the sense of multilateralism and international law. And one is about liberal in the extent that countries' internal political orders have liberal values. And I think you probably see a greater fear of a slippery slope for those who want to change the internal order of others. I mean, both of those have been huge sticking points, you know, since World War One and realist critique of Wilson, right? It was all about the naivete of believing that multilateral institutions could solve things. But later it was a critique and really, you know, after the Iraq war, et cetera, it's all about this crusading impulse. And Wilson was a crusader for one thing, Bush, I think unfairly framed as a crusader for something else. And there's this, I mean, this fear of crusading progressives is absolutely integral to the realist tradition. And then, I mean, you seem to be deeply concerned that Biden will move in that direction, perhaps in the sense of liberal internal order. I think it's more that what the option now that actually lets left and right come together is if you put a lot of stock in the multilateralism and multilateralism puts so much stock in sovereignty and the rights of each member, whether in the UN system or other mechanisms, you eventually wind up backing out and not doing that much. Mm-hmm. Um, that what will happen when the rubber hits the road and when Biden sees it's hard to confront Egypt about human rights or anything else, you you can just sort of move forward with their multilateral agenda, right? And it's a problem, right? They're they're joining the Human Rights Council. They're saying by engagement we could change things. Obama engaged for eight years, and he still wound up with it with a council that had Russia and China as members, which is like, you know, for those who like literally don't think that's true, go to the UN's website and li- look at look at how Cuba, Kazakhstan, and Gabon are on the council too. Um, so I think that's that's why it's you know we've seen obviously this folding around where the center of both parties seem a little closer to each other and the wings are more sort of critical of the establishment, the blob, the elite. Yeah. And no, they feel, a, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I think it's a really good way to put it. I, 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 uh, especially about, yeah, what multilateralism leads to. And again, maybe I'm a little sort of, uh, weird on that in the sense that, that, uh, uh, I think most realists end up at this point in time being restrainers and, and really critical of American, action where I, I think that's that's a mistake. And I'll just also add that, you know, where I end up coming at it from is that while I worry about the crusading aspect of it, I also worry about uh, overcorrecting for that because I think that one of the sources of American strength in the world is that that crusading thing. I mean, this is just from working with Walter Mead all these years and, you know, his four schools and things like that. But any anyone who thinks that any one of the schools is is of American foreign policy thought from special providence for our so when I was listening to your last episode, the thing I kept wanting to jump in and say about realism yeah. is that what's amazing is how realism has become only what you might call defensive realism, right? In in academic schools, there's sort of offensive and defensive realism. And the restrainer school is really only one half of that tradition. And the other half has increasingly withered. I mean, maybe John Bolton is the 
representative in, among practitioners because right? realism if it's really this hard-edged view that sees power as the determining force it's very unclear whether the implication of that is that you should be aggressive and ruthless and use force offensively when you need to yeah. or whether the answer is you should you know focus on risk and on the tragic sense of things and always just be avoiding debacles and the you know the the most influential academic realists walt mearsheimer barry posen it's almost all congealing around the restraint view where and there's just the the offensive realists have gone which is interesting because they, they were stronger kissinger is a bit of an offensive realist in some sense or a, a middle of the rotor in that regard and right because there was also this fear if you look at it's interesting his book does america need a foreign policy from the 90s he has these strange rants about how his great fear is that people who sort of came of age as sort of hippie protesters like bill clinton thought you could have a foreign policy without force and strength yeah. that doesn't seem to be a big worry now but that's also very historically been a very big part of the realist tradition right it's like how could people not think the national interest is what we should do how could they think that ethics are the way to organize our foreign policy yeah that's yeah, a really yeah. good point about bolton um and i just it hadn't occurred to me that there's so few of them left and it, i don't know if someone's working on a biography on bolton now but maybe the last realist could be um a good title. A good title for those of you who are listening who want to write Bolton's biography. On that note, we do have to close up. We're Rough. a little bit over an hour. I know uh, there will be sadness all around. However, this uh, I do have to put in a little um, a little encouragement to all all you who are listening. Uh, we got a couple cool things in the pipeline. One is courtesy of me. We have a new subscribers only. Uh, column on the return of boredom that just came out. So uh, another reason to subscribe if you haven't already. And I guess right after this, Demir and I will do uh, a bonus episode. Um, so stay tuned for that. I don't know exactly what we're going to talk about, but uh, stay tuned for that. And if you do want to subscribe, you can go to our website at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. And then um, that's how you do it. And then we also are trying to do more on Clubhouse. I think we're going to start doing a club, a sort of like impromptu hangout um, on Clubhouse on Mondays at 6 p.m. So stay tuned for that or just, just show up if you guys are into that. I mean, Demir and I are getting more into this new app. If you're not familiar with it, uh it's it could be the future of the future something of we don't know what exactly but <laughs> it could be a future of something and with that i'll just thank our our dear guest uh, david desnick good to catch up with you um check out the study which we'll include a link to in the show notes demir any final words no i i just really enjoyed this david uh real pleasure catching up again and uh you know once this uh this this terrible plague is behind us hopefully in a few months we can uh we can we can meet up in person and catch up again and in, in more detail we totally didn't talk pandemic in over an hour um <laughs> although i will say if you don't want to be bored have young children during a pandemic <laughs> you'll simply be tired that's good advice right there have kids yes mm -hmm. indeed all right thanks a lot okay, guys bye, david. bye bye bye